Welcome to season three of the Iceman Kicking Podcast. My name is Brett Arkellian. Kick your feet up, relax, and enjoy this episode of the Iceman Kicking Podcast. They call me the it's one of the biggest mistakes that coaches make. Number one, you got to be like yourself, man. You know, like being true to yourself is just so valuable. Welcome to the Iceman Kicking Podcast. It's the show with cold guests and even cooler questions and i'm here with one of the goats in the kicking game he's been a coach uh he's been a Broyles award nominee and he's also been an assistant head coach at multiple schools and someone who uh holds a place near and dear to my heart because he spoke when i was getting into it and learning we have coach justin lustig of the vanderbilt commoners coach how you doing today i'm great man appreciate you having me on yeah, I'm freaking fired. As as we talked about, I've I've been waiting for this episode, and I know you're busy, and I'm busy too. And so I've been able to really do some research and and uh, listen to a lot of episodes, and falling asleep on the plane, and I could nod nod back and hear talking about uh, Lake Erie and in Pennsylvania. And so, yeah, that's it's pretty cool. Hey, we like to start our sections now with a a new segment brought to you by the Kickers Bible. Would that be okay? Can we do that? That's great. Okay, this section is called Heavy Hitters. So okay. instead of getting into your background, which is great in the days of yeah. viral clips and all that, you kind of have to start with the heavy, heavy hitters. Now, for me, I'm a young coach with high aspirations of being a special teams coordinator and a head coach. Well, you've done all those things. What is the first thing that you have to start focusing on or planning when you become a head coach? Because there's so many different responsibilities and stuff you can do. Like, what, where do you even start with that, coach? Yeah, I mean, I think it's cliche to, you know, you hear the cliche of uh, you're never you're never going to be ready for it until you start doing it. And that's absolutely true. Um, however, you know, I think as, as you are, as you mentioned, your goals, those were my goals as a young coach. And, you know, you're always in the back of your mind thinking at all your stops and all the the people that you learn from, you know, taking the things that you that you like and uh, maybe the things that you don't like and, uh, you know, starting like a little notebook. And I did that um, of uh, how I would want to run things if I had the opportunity. So I think just taking the time to think about it is uh, is the first thing I would say. Um, and then, you know, and again, this is another cliche, but just being yourself and um, and really taking time to sit down and write down the things that you believe in, you know, uh, from a from a big program perspective or even as a position coach or a, or a coordinator level I think those things are important and uh, oftentimes get overlooked but uh, you know I remember as a young coach maybe like just stealing stuff from people and um, which is common and nothing wrong with that but even just from a philosophy standpoint um, just like stealing stuff and going into an interview and maybe like you know, I'm going to use these things that I learned instead of like really taking the time to like just go hole up in a library somewhere or in my office. And, you know, what do I really believe in? What do I really think matters? Um, I think that's really important that you stay true to yourself. Yeah, I could definitely see that, too, from my perspective. I'm kind of in that where I'm like, OK, I like this. I like this. But it's not until recently I really try to start sculpting things that, you know, fashion. After yeah. I really believe it. So. To kind of detail that, and for those who don't know, you become the head coach of Edinburgh in 2016. Is that correct? That's correct. I liked how you talked about too that in a couple of different podcasts and stuff. It's a Division Two conference, but shoot, man, is it competitive? I 
played at Lincoln University, which is yeah. in Pennsylvania, and we played Cheney yeah. in the PSAC. Yep. And we had some competitive games there, but holy crap, I've watched some of those PSAC games, and those guys are on another level. Yeah. Uh, you know, you talked about some of those guys could play at that next level. So when you're becoming the head coach at Edinburgh, what are, what are some of your values or what were some things that you ended up coming up with that you're like, you know what, this really matters to me or these are the first steps I'm going to take coming to head coach? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think it's um, it, it's hard to articulate some of those things, but um, I think it started for me with like two things, like just discipline and effort. Those are the two things I really wanted to establish right away. Um, and uh, so defining what that means to, to guys and uh, and then also just like, starting like lists of things that um, are actionable items that go with those things, right? Like, so, you know, it's easy to just talk about, we're going to be disciplined and we're going to be playing with total effort. Um, so like defining total effort, right? It's the the start for us. It's the start, the middle, the finish and the return. And, um, and, and that's what it is here at Vanderbilt. And it's, you know, how do you start a drill? Um, your hands behind the line, um, you know, the discipline of, of that, um, the middle um, is the fight and how you're grinding through that drill. The finish is how you're finishing, you know, one yard past the finish line. And then the return, how you're returning to the back of the line. Are you recycling positive energy? Um, and then constantly like showing the players, you know, what, what that means. And so you're videoing your off season workouts and, and um, you know, just uh, detailing up all those things that, you, that, that are important to you. And then to me, like discipline, uh, how you do everything is or anything is how you do everything. And uh, I know those are cliches, but as, as long as you're talking about it and you're showing them examples constantly, um, you know, th that's what's really important to me. And then the third thing I, I would say is just like being a true team and um, putting the team uh, ahead of yourself. Um, those were like the three things I would say that, that we really hung our hat on uh, from the beginning. And uh, but, man, there was a lot. You know, I mean, we took over a program that was on, I believe it was a 16 game losing streak. Um, so there was a lot of things to to work on and, and to get better at. And that was uh, that was one of the most fun years of my coaching career, though, is is uh, that 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 year at Edinburgh. Yeah, I remember hearing you talk about the, you know, the emotion and the joy on, on your kids faces when you guys won that first game. They, they were um, they had they hadn't won a game uh, the previous season. Um so we went in and we ended up going nine and two. Um, it was the biggest turnaround in college football at the time. I think Tulane just actually beat that with a, with a 10 win turnaround, turnaround this year. Um, but, uh, you know, so that first game, just getting that win, that it was our first win in the first game of the season to break a 16 game losing streak. And uh, man, that was, that was the tipping point for sure. You just, you just felt so much more buy-in too that, man, what we're doing right now is working. And, uh, um, and that was key to, that kind of, we, we hung our hat on that win throughout the entire season. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's funny too. I think of a trivia and stuff like that. I mean, that would be a good trivia game, guessing all the PSAC names of the teams like who'd you get <laughs> yeah for sure who was beating that first game who was it well, we we actually played out of conference okay. we uh we played saint joe's in indiana um and that was a at at saint joe's in indiana so long bus ride i don't miss those bus rides um and some of those you know hotels that you stayed in and stopping at orion's or uh you know some kind of place to have a pregame meal and um 
you know, it's certainly a lot different in the SEC. Yeah, some type of buffet, right, or some gold yeah, right. corral. That's what I remember yeah. from playing in that conference or in the yep. CIAA for two years. It's like every every game was an eight-hour bus ride. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you're eating chicken, uh, you know, fried chicken the night before a game. And you're like, I don't know yeah. if it's going to help us, but it's going to fuel us. So. For sure. Yeah, no, I remember one story. We were um, we were playing Clarion, and uh, we didn't have the money to to stay overnight. And it was about a two hour bus ride. So it wasn't horrible, but it was a noon game. So you had to like, you know, we were meeting at the facility at like five 30 in the morning. And then we're going to do a pregame meal on our way down. And we had it set up at a place called Eaton park, which is a Western PA kind of a golden corral kind of place, Ryan steakhouse buffet. And we had it. One of our coaches was supposed to have it set up where we were, you know, sectioned off in our own area and we get there and, and they're not ready for us. And, you know, there's uh, I think, the youngest person in the, in the restaurant was probably like 72. Um, but we're, we're eating our pregame meal around all these people. And I'm thinking, man, this is, this is not good. You know, <laughs> our guys aren't focused. And, and then we go out and we, we get up like 28, nothing in the first like two minutes of the game and we're playing our butts off and playing really well. And, you know, it just makes you think like how, how, how much is, uh, how important is that stuff? You know? Maybe every game you guys need to eat with senior citizens. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying. Maybe I'll try to convince Clark to. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure he'll be take us to, to Eaton Park or Golden Corral. Yeah, or play Florida. <laughs> and that was yeah. That was the other thing. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of them there. That uh, I like to talk about too is the difference between smaller school and you coach at Christopher Christopher Newport. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. yeah um school too but just like you were talking about with like filming the uh you know off-season drills and all that stuff I'm sure that is a big along with the roles what is what was one of the weirdest roles that you had coaching small school ball whether it was washing clothes or video any of that yeah stuff? man that's a great question I mean I've done a lot and I I'm, I'm really proud of uh of uh coming up from like the smaller school levels I just think it's such a good thing for young coaches to have that experience um of coaching or playing at smaller levels it just makes you appreciate everybody in the building now that you know I'm at a, a higher level um so I've done a lot um from cutting the president's grass at Christopher Newport to try to make some extra money um to shovel on the the dog crap out of his out of his yard um but uh probably one of the most memorable ones my first year so I left Christopher Newport for my first like real full-time job at Eastern Illinois um and I was working for Bob Spoo, who's a legend and uh, has, has passed away, but uh, learned so much from him. But I was in charge of travel. And our first game at Eastern Illinois was at Hawaii. Um, so I'm in charge of travel and we're flying commercial. Um, we have to bus to O'Hare and we fly commercial. And I, we like I'm helping like the equipment guys get the stuff on the commercial flight. And uh, I mean, it was just mayhem. Um, all the details and I was I was coaching you know I had special teams and at the time I was coaching the running back special teams and working all the travel to get our, our whole party out to, to Hawaii including like you know the AD and some boosters and uh, it was a lot but um, you know when, when you hear like coaches complain about you know they don't like the roles at dinner you, you, you become a little sensitive to that when you're in charge of it you know that's funny yeah especially too. I'm sure you've even I've coached with some guys that are, you know, they they smirk at some of the jobs that people have to do. But you're right, it's it's a real character building. How long did you guys stay uh, at Hawaii when you're at Eastern Illinois? And you guys went out there. Did you treat? Uh, yeah, at Eastern Illinois. 
Yeah. Yeah. We, um, we, yeah, we treated it like a bowl game. We left on like a Tuesday, I think. And then we came, flew back on Sunday. Yeah. So, um, and then this year at, uh, at Vanderbilt, we, we played at Hawaii. So that was, I got to go back out there for the second time and that's hadn't been there 15 years or whatever. Yeah. That's pretty sweet, man. Especially the, some of the experiences that you get in, this is kind of another side tangent, but people always say, you know, isn't that going to be tough if you have a family and kids? And and I've heard some coaches say, yeah, but they get experiences that no other kid will ever get. Yeah. And, I, you know, one of the things that um, somebody said to me years ago, which is really true to me, is when you're a coach, like you don't have a lot of hobbies. You know, it's hard to have a lot of hobbies or like kind of side things that you're involved in. So, for example, like I've, a lot of my buddies that I went to college with that are doing different things. They may uh, belong to a country club and they golf or, you know, they, they go on hunting and fishing trips or they're in a softball league. Like I don't do those things, you know? So when I have time off, it's with the family, you know, and, and that's pretty much a hundred percent of the time. So um, at the end of the day, it kind of equals out, you know, um, the time that you, you have with your family and yeah. And getting back to your point that, yeah, they've, they've had, my kids have had awesome experiences and, you know, I think one of the best things is when I was a head coach, them being able to ride on the front of the bus with me and go on, you know, on, on trips. And even those 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 trips weren't maybe as glamorous as, uh, you know, playing at Georgia or playing at Hawaii, um, playing at Slippery Rocks a little bit different. But, you know, <laughs> it still felt great, man, having them on the front of the bus and and being able, being able to be like right in the middle of it. Well, I think even that experience is cooler, too, because from a young age, they learned all these like just being a college football fan, they learn different parts of college football that a lot of people have never seen, you know, they know about their favorite players actually on, you know, uh, you know, Edinburgh or, yeah, right. you know, some, some small school. And then they, as they grow up and of course you you move up and you're moving all the way up. They, they're uh, fans of that too. So that's, yeah, for sure. For that's sure. really cool. All right. So real quick, take us through your background, a little bit of brief overview. When you were a bone crushing defensive back at Bucknell, you made a, you recovered a fumble. That was that was one of your high points, you said, and then also a low point. But what was that experience like in general at, at Bucknell during the 97 to 2000? I didn't mean to date you on that. but Yeah, no, it's all good, man. Um, awesome experience, um, you know, and, and so blessed looking back on that. Really got me into co- – I'm not one of the guys that, like, grew up saying, I'm going to be a coach someday. Um, you know, I thought when I first got to Bucknell, I'd be a doctor and um, – just kind of fell in love with football and that's because of the coaches that I had. And, and man, I was blessed to have some great coaches. So on, on that staff, uh, my head coach was a guy named Tom Gad who had been um, a great power five defensive coordinator. He was South Carolina defense coordinator, uh, Minnesota, Utah. Um, so learned a ton from him, but also Dave Katolsky, who um, was a defense coordinator at Vanderbilt had coached at Stanford um, uh Derek Mason the previous head coach at Vanderbilt was on that staff John Fossil who's in the NFL um Joe Lombardi who's an offensive coordinator in the NFL now I mean it's just a long list I can keep going down the line of, of great guys Norris Wilson um was the head coach at Columbia um so I was just blessed to have the, all these great guys around and uh made me fall in love with football and my head coach kind of got me into coaching and and then really one of my biggest mentors is a guy named Dave Legg who was my position coach um, and coach leg left uh, my senior year when I was done playing to go to Christopher Newport and called me and said, Hey, you want to get into coaching? You can coach the DBs by yourself right away. Um, Cause he knew that I like, all I knew was what he taught me. Um, 
And I, I just had a great opportunity to kind of be a GA, but also be a full-time kind of coach right away. Um, and that, that got it going. And, um, you know, did the Christopher Newport thing and then Villanova for a year, Eastern Illinois, Louisiana Lafayette, Ball State, head coach at Edinburgh, Syracuse, and now Vanderbilt. So we bounced around. Kids have lived all over the place. But, uh, you know, I think, you know, I, bouncing around, there's so much value in that. Um, you know, you, you don't want to be the guy that's just bouncing around every year. And, and you know, I try not to do that. Um, but there is a lot of value in, in being around so many different coaches and so many different head coaches to go back to the point that we mentioned earlier, when you're trying to develop your own philosophy and you're around all these guys with different backgrounds, whether it's their offensive coaches or defensive head coaches and guys that have learned from other people, you're just stealing so much knowledge. And that's, that's been great for me. And I, I really value that. That aspect is pretty cool. And, and uh, I've gotten to see a, a little bit of that too. Um, but man, that's such an awesome staff that you were under. There was a conversation you said you had with your dad where, uh, you know, he had been, he, he talked you out of becoming the next, uh, what sales rep at Dick Sporting Goods. How did, yeah. that, how did that transpire? Yeah. So, um, so when I graduated from college, um, I, I majored in English and history and, uh, I, I had a lot of things that were, you know, that I was pursuing. I was thinking about law school. I was thinking about, um, you know, getting into the business world. So I, I started going on some, some business interviews and, um, you know, was offered a job with Dick's in like an executive um, kind of a leadership program where they kind of bring you up. You start out in sales, then you get into marketing. And, and uh, you know, I, I thought that would be kind of a neat, neat thing to, to try to do. And I just remember I, I went back to my dad and I, I said, you know, I think I'm going to take this job at Dick's. And uh, but I also got this football thing with my position coach that I'm, I'm considering. And he's like, so you're going to sell clothes for a living, huh? And he just, he kind of made me feel bad about it. And I said, you know what, let me just give this football thing a try. And if I do it for a year and I like it, you know, maybe it'll turn into something. So that that's kind of how it all started for me. And the rest is history. The rest is history. Yep. Then, and he had spent time as a D3 coach for 15 or 15 or so. Years. Yeah. He's a, he's a really unique story. He, um he actually is, a, he's an orthopedic surgeon who, um when I was in high school, he was always coaching like on the side um, he had coached at General McLean High School, which is a small school in Pennsylvania outside of the city I grew up in um, when I was a kid. And then when I got to high school, he became our defensive coordinator. Um, and then when I was in college, about halfway through college, he he quit being a doctor to take like a $25,000 a year job at Allegheny College um, as a linebacker coach at Allegheny. And um and uh, so he was he was a, a full time D3 coach when I was in college. And, and uh, his, his example certainly um, played a huge role in my decision making throughout my entire life. But, but certainly at that point when I decided to become a coach. Sure. And also it shows you that it's it's not about the money. Right. I mean, so many guys are in it and they're just chasing. I mean, I still feel like I haven't made a single dollar in this in this thing. But yeah. I do know and in, in talking to others like yourself, it's like. Hey, if you're passionate about what you do, like it's, it's all going to work out and you're going to be fulfilled and happy coach. For sure. I mean, that's so key. And, uh, you know, and, and, and as old as I am now, it, the game has changed so much. I mean, it wasn't, I didn't get into it thinking I was going to make a ton of money. Um, and you know, it's obviously it's, it's changed quite a bit over the years. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, 
the passion of doing it. And I think you see, you know, where that shows up to me a lot is, um, is like camps. You know, when you, when you see coaches coaching at like, uh, it, it could be a youth camp or it could be a prospect camp, but the guys that are really coaching their butts off and, and trying to make kids better, even though you are evaluating too, um, those are the guys that, that I want to be around that are passionate, that love it. And, uh, um, they're just getting after it cause they really enjoy doing it. Sure. And that's how a lot of young coaches get spotted, right? Is coaching their butts off at those camps. and For sure. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. Okay. So you kind of bounced around. We talked about the reason why I brought up that EIU trip is that was like one of my first games. I grad transferred from a school in Pennsylvania to UT Martin, who's in the OVC. First games was Hawaii. And it was one of those deals where it's like, we're out in West Tennessee. So there's no freaking airports (laughs) anywhere around there. And you've been, I'm sure you've been out there. Oh yeah. Yeah. And so we take the bus from Tennessee Martin at like whatever f- five at night, maybe. I think we flew like all night. Drove to Nashville, yeah. got a flight in Nashville. Nashville flew to Atlanta, yeah. and then we make the eight hour. We're like, we're going away from Hawaii. What are we doing here? Yeah, right. That whole trip was so cool because it was, you know, I was a D two guy. I saw myself as a small school guy, and yeah. that was our bowl game. You get to play in the, you know, where they had the or used to have the Pro Bowl, and yeah. We ran into a buzzsaw there at Hawaii when we played them. It was like, I don't know if you remember Colt Brennan and some of those great oh, teams. Yeah. Yeah. Those June were those Jones. teams, huh? Yeah. June Jones was the head coach. And I mean, they had an all-star staff too. Uh, um, I, I'm going blank on some of the names, but man, they had some legends on that staff. Yep. I remember that for sure because I was, I grew up in Fresno, California and Fresno State fans. So they were, there was an intense rivalry and we thought, we were supposed to be that team, that Boise State, and it was always Hawaii who would trip them up or Hawaii. That around that season is when they went to the Sugar Bowl, right? Yeah, yep, yep. Play Georgia, yep. Yeah. So, man, that's really cool. So, okay, so kind of transitioning now into you know, I I really do want to bring up too, Coach, that at Ball State you got to learn under a legendary coach, Pete Limbo. Yeah, the special teams world, and I'm sure you learned a lot of lessons there. And he respected you so much, you became the associate head coach or the assistant coach. Yeah. What did you learn from him? And, and, you know, what did that mean to be, you know, the assistant or the associate head coach like you are now? Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, that was a great experience, man. Coach Lembo is awesome. Um, uh, one of the best, um, you know, just managers of uh, just organized, smart, um, just does a really good job of uh, staying on details as a head coach. So I learned that from him. Um, and, you know, and then it kind of progressed as I got that title, you know, I got the opportunity to, um, you know, do things like hire um, some smaller positions on the staff, you know, the assistant football ops uh, position, I remember some GA jobs. Um, I think that's one of the things that really stood out is is him giving me a th- um, some authority to to help hire some some members of his staff. Um, and then, you know, it, it really just becomes, I think it's, it's really become this role on most of my stops, um, with the assistant head coach title, uh, really being a sounding board for the head coach, just somebody that he can pull in. And when he's got to make big decisions, he's got somebody that he can lean on and bounce ideas off of. And, uh, it certainly started at ball state and, um, it's something I take a lot of pride in, you know, here, one of the responsibilities we have is, um, helping the younger coaches develop. So, we do an off-season thing with all of our younger coaches on our staff where we do mock interviews and uh, we just do things to try to advance their careers and, and make them better coaches. 
And that's huge. A lot of places, you know, from bouncing around don't do that. So taking that ownership of your coaches on staff is, is a really cool aspect. Um, so kind of when you go into that special teams coordinator world and you kind of, you've been there for a long time, you know, and you've bounced around at different places, um, which is great. What, how do you get those guys though? You're a first year uh, coordinator or you're a coordinator at a new spot for the first time. How do you get those guys to buy in or, or even trust you, you know, cause you're entirely a new face with a new staff. Yeah. I think that's, that's always the challenge. Um, number one, I would say be yourself. Like, I think that's, that's critical is, uh, I mean, it's like building any relationship with anybody, you know, uh, in order for them to trust you, they got to make sure you got to make sure that they feel your authenticity, um, uh, being who you are. Um, so I think that's really important. Um, obviously we, we I mean, we do a lot and I could, we probably could spend a whole podcast on, you know, how to make special teams important from things that you share with your players. Um, the other key thing I think is just making sure the head coach is bought in to the importance of it. I mean, we all know how critical that is. The more he's in meetings, the more he's in team settings, showing some special teams clips. But I think that can be driven by the the special teams coordinator, you know, uh, making sure that you're going into his office like, hey, coach, man, can you show these two clips? And here's what I'd like you to say um, to try to drive the importance of it and then getting the staff to to buy in as well. And, hey, you know, maybe in a staff meeting, telling the position coaches, hey, can you mention this in your meeting about uh, this guy who's like really showing up on the special teams? Um I think that helps a lot too. But yeah, in terms of, of gaining trust in the beginning, I think it's just uh it's just showing consistency and showing authenticity, you know, as as kind of as broad as that sounds. I think that's the the key thing. No, I, I definitely see that too. And I you know, I hadn't really thought from that perspective. A lot of times when you're a young coach, you're just like, All right, head coach believes what he believes, and like we're just gonna ride with it, right? Or whatever he says goes. But I can see, especially when you built a good relationship with your head coach, bringing up certain points and especially special teams coordinator. I respect all special teams coordinators because you're essentially, regardless if you have the title or not, you're the second head coach. You know, you're speaking to yeah. them every day and that time you get with them is super important. That's one thing I've learned. So, yeah, for sure. And I think I think the other thing that that in terms of being a good assistant coach, I think this goes for all positions but especially a special teams coordinator because you're speaking in front of the whole team is um, is doing a great job of echoing the message of the head coach, you know? Um, so obviously whatever his message is to the team that day or that week, or just, you know, broad picture things that, that you're constantly echoing that message and, uh, and, 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 you know, reemphasizing the things that, 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 that he believes in. And I think I learned that, especially when I was a head coach, is how important that is, man. If I can get the assistant coaches to speak the way that I'm speaking, use the language that I'm using um, to just emphasize the things that are important to me. Yeah. Yeah. I thought about that a lot too, thinking, hey, when I become a coordinator, I mean, what's the best way to get the assistants to, to jump on? Do I take them all out to lunch every day, just one after <laughs> another, like just keep buying them stuff? Or right. you know, is it, I'm sure it has something to do with building relationships. Oh, for sure. I mean, I, I think, you know, um, I think, you know, there's an old saying like to have influence on people, you got to have two things. You got to be proficient at what you do. You got to be good at what you do, but you also got to be likable. And, um, you know, so uh, just popping into guys' offices and and not being a jerk about it, you know, but hey, man, can you help me with this? I really appreciate it. And 
Um, but yeah, getting those assistants to buy in is is a critical part of of having success. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I see that too with the few of the staffs I've been on. I mean, it seems like everyone, and you talked about this briefly uh, when you did that Vanderbilt show, might've been a year or two ago, but <clears throat> having the staff and the players know these are the coaching points or, you know, when your staff, I realize when your staff knows how the drills are supposed to run and what the coaching points are, I mean, that makes everything so much more smooth. It's tough when it's a new staff. For sure. For sure. And I think like the older you get and the older I've gotten, I've, you know, we've kind of fine tuned everything with our drills and our language and language being a really important one. Like I want guys saying things the exact way that I'm saying them, you know, I mean, you could say, you can say, come to balance. You can say, press down. You can say, get in a football position. I mean, you can explain that you can go speed to power, right? Like there's all these different ways to shorten your stride and get in a football position. But um, if you're throwing out all these different words constantly, um, it's hard for the players to learn. And, uh, that language piece is, is, is really important to me. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you get that? Do you meet with them in the off season? Does your, you guys meet yeah. with staff and talk about, Hey, this is how we're going to say it. Yeah. We meet in the off season. Uh, usually it's like, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll go to the head coach and um, maybe it, usually it's like a week or two before spring ball and a week or two before camp. And then we, we usually have like two days where we just grind it out and go through all the drills and the language and, uh, you know, the, the beautiful thing is when you have a staff that's been together and those meetings, instead of being two days, can end up being just a half a day because you're they're used to it. Um, but, yeah, that, that's how we've done it. And uh, the one thing that as I've progressed and gotten on to some of these bigger staffs with all the QCs and GAs, we I've really leaned on the younger guys, you know, that are maybe a little bit hungrier. And I've, I've kind of sold them on the fact that like this is an opportunity for you to really coach a position um you know instead of having the receiver coach coach the gunners maybe it's the receiver ga that's in charge of it and uh you know maybe having allowing him to have some position meetings during camp with those those gunners um you know gives him an opportunity to kind of show what he can do sure sure that's awesome i never really thought about that and then just kind of let the special teams GA, right? Whoever kind of run the scout team, huh? Because sometimes yeah. these guys will help out. But yeah, that's for sure. Give them, make them feel important, huh? Yeah, for sure. What about for specialists? I mean, you've been around those weird guys. I was a specialist. You've been yeah. around them for forever. Um, you know, you talk about creating opportunities for them. And I've heard you kind of talk about this before. But what are what are some ways you give them responsibility or ownership when it comes to not just their kicking, but special teams? Yeah, one of the, I mean, one of the things that we picked up, uh, I believe we picked this up from, uh, I think it was a guy from Stanford, um, but years ago, we uh, we started giving the specialists game day duties, so they all have books on the sideline, and instead of having the, the GAs and QCs who are usually, you know, uh, overwhelmed with their offense and defensive duties, um, you know, we'll have like the backup punter will be charting the opponent punter during the game. And the backup long snapper, his eyes are on the long snapper the entire game and maybe charting his snaps. Um, and there might be a backup kicker who's helping us with personnel on, on, on kickoff. And he's just checking to make sure it's the same guys every every single time. So giving those guys game day duties, you know, especially when they're not playing a lot, um, the backup guys especially has been a, a fun thing for us that's, uh, that, that's given them a little bit more ownership in the results of the game. Um, so that's been that's been one of the main things that, that has has been good for us. 
Yeah, I like that. I like, and that's when we started doing it at Marshall. And and do you guys do anything different from a from a practice perspective? I've been to to the fields there after living in in uh, the Nashville area, and you guys got a few fields out there. Uh, you know, what do you like to do with them at practice? Obviously, you're working with tight ends too, but uh, is there something different you you like to do with them at practice or any competitions, any games? I don't think there's anything that's 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 real different. Um, one of the things that we've done over the last probably five or six years is, is try to designate team periods that uh, will try to simulate more of a, a game style rep. Um, so it could be, you know, we did, a, I thought we did a nice job of that this year with like uh, pin punts. We put an emphasis on that during camp. And uh, so we would designate maybe two periods and team periods, especially like if you're driving the ball um, where, you know, if, uh, if the if the ones are done with their rack of, of reps, maybe we'll finish with a pin and we'll um, the punter and the long snapper and maybe a gunner and, and they might compete against a couple of jammers. Um, but you'll do kind of a rep within the team period. So the punters and kickers have to just get used to not, um, you know, it's a punt period and you're going 10 minutes straight of punts. But that's not realistic, right? Like they got to be able to warm up on the sideline, jog out onto the field, execute one rep, and maybe not have another rep for another ten minutes. Um, so I think simulating those situations in game or in practice um, is critical and, and has helped us a little bit. Yeah, I love that. Actually, this when I got to Davis, this is the first time I've ever seen anything like that. Really, we call them inserts, but yeah, throw some gunners out there. Sometimes maybe even throw a corner. Yeah, work the leases, you know, and then work on down in the because that's so important, you know. For if sure. you can win the red zone battle or the pin yep. punt battle, I think that's that's really cool. I, I get jacked up about that. Did you did it translate in the game? Do you think you guys it did? Yeah, the, the pins we were we 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 made significant improvement on, on those this year. So that was that was good for us. And the other thing that we've done is like not only will we uh, do just like uh, maybe the battery, the long snapper, and the punter, but we'll also sometimes just have the whole punt unit take a rep on air in the middle of those team periods, which is good too. Cause I think those guys, you know, you got to get them to focus, you know, um, the offense just goes three and out and your two receivers, two of your receivers and a running back are on the punt team and they got to refocus and maybe they made a mistake on that third down play and they got to wipe that out of their head and refocus on that punt play. Uh, we talk about one shot mentality all the time, uh, but you got to train it and you got to, you got to do it in practice and, Again, if you're if you're just doing the punt period ten minutes straight, and those guys are getting five or six reps in a row, it's a little bit different than having to you know clear your mind from the previous offensive play and then go out there and execute on a on one play on punt. No question, that's that. Just like you said, one shot mentality, right? Be able to lock in and focus. I'm assuming that's yeah, for sure. That is awesome. Well, hey, coach, I appreciate. It. I've been throwing you a ton of different things and a great sport about it. We're, we're kind of wrapping up here, but um, we do a, a, a rapid fire section at the end. Okay. This, this section is uh, you don't have to get too into detail. All right. But you can tell me what these things mean to you and I'll, I'll kind of throw some questions at you. That sound good. Yeah, that's great. Okay. This one, and this is a little bit longer just because it's at the start, but I've, I've always wondered about this and you can tell me in game adjustments, essentially when you have a kickoff or a kickoff return, you, you almost always have a timeout. I think that's Mike Westoff who talked about having, you know, always a play. Do you use that to your advantage at all? Or, you know, do you do things with that? Sometimes you get a TV timeout, two minutes, 30 seconds. Sure. What do you do with in-game adjustments? Yeah, I mean, that's one of my, uh, maybe one of my favorite things is being able to adjust during the game. And uh, 
I, I think it's one of the most rewarding things when you can make adjustments in the game and uh, and and create an advantage. So yes, we certainly do that. Um, I think it's a lot of it's just communicating with the players, um, especially when you got some older veteran guys. Um, I like to give them some freedom on, for example, we've got like on kickoff return, two guys that have been working the double team for us uh, for the last two years. And we've allowed them, we've given them like three or four different tools on different types of double teams. Um, you know, so it might be, hey, we're struggling with, you know, the vice double team at the 30, we're going to jump them right away, you know. Uh, so those are the kind of conversations that we'll have. Um, or like, you know, I, I talk a lot on like in our Friday meetings of like the players, you guys got to talk to me, you know, and, and that's the time where they should be talking to me. You know, I'm struggling blocking 32 and coach. He's a, he's a demon. He's a beast. Um, all right, well, let's, let's change up the, the scheme a little bit where we're, we're going to bring an MDM player off the backside just to help you out. And once you whiff, just climb to the safety, you know, um, so those types of adjustments. Yeah. That, that, those are, those are some of my favorite parts of game day. And uh, we certainly use that time. And we've also, you know, we've got some auxiliary returns and auxiliary kickoff schemes that maybe you didn't practice a whole lot during the week, uh, drawn up in a book that, you know, I think a lot of people do that, uh, where you can go to that uh, in mid game and, and just go over the drawings with the guys in the huddle and say, Hey, we're going to, we're going to try this, this return that we, maybe we haven't practiced, but we'll, we'll give it a shot on this one. I love that. Giving the coach or the players to that ownership to say, Hey, we might, this isn't working. Let's do this. It's good stuff. For sure. right. uh, any proverbs or coachisms? I heard you say a few, and I yeah. know you're kind of like, yeah, that's that's coach speak or whatever. But I, I, I think really good coaches always have some really good ones, and it always sticks in my brain. You got oh, any good man. ones that you like repeating? Yeah, man, I've got. I think that's one of the things I really enjoy, and I make the players kind of repeat a lot of things to me. So we've got a lot of them, and uh, you know, like I say, control the hip. The players say control the soul. Um, sometimes the best block is, and they all say no block. I think everybody's, you know, probably done that one. Um, another like, uh, quote that I use quite a bit in, in kind of my philosophy, I, I mean, I really believe in repetition. So there's an old Bruce Lee quote. Uh, I fear not the man who has practiced 10,000 kicks one time, but I fear the man who's practiced one kick 10,000 times. Um, I love that one. You know, so yeah, I, I mean, we could. I, I I love that stuff, man. We could talk for days on some of those. We'll get into some of that stuff later. Yeah. I I love that though. That's as a young coach, I'm like, man, I want to, I want to, I want to take a book of coachisms and just read it and, and repeat for sure. it. Sure, yeah, for sure. There's a lot of wisdom wisdom there. All right, uh, you said there is one player, NFL player, that looks like an avatar. Who is it? Oh man, on our team now, or well, just... now that you faced in the past, and okay, uh... um, you know, uh. Derwin James. It was um, actually Trevor Lawrence. And yeah, and well, Trevor Lawrence for sure <laughs> looks that way. And I don't know that Derwin James looks that way, but man, he, um, he there's two names that pop into my head. Bob Sanders. You know who that is? Yes, I remember that. So Bob yeah. Sanders and I went to high school together. He was actually closer to my brother's age, but um, he uh, just always was like just this. And he's only like 5'8", but he's five, eight, and just rocked up. And, uh, one of my favorite football players of all time, um, how physical he played the way he played the game, um, with, with such passion and toughness and made such a difference on his team when he was on the field. And then Derwin James, like we at Syracuse, we lost to Florida state one year at Florida state. And I swear he single-handedly 
uh, changed the game in in really two phases, defense and special teams. And that that guy, I remember a couple, a couple of my NFL buddies were calling me, asking me about him. I'm like, take that guy, man. He's gonna he's gonna deal. be a difference maker. Yeah, yeah. That's I never thought of that too. Now when I'm doing scanner reports or or something, trying to describe a player, I might say he's like an avatar. You know, just yeah, your athletic ability and just being around the field all the time. Or, yeah. Yeah, being an animal. I love that. Okay. Um, and you kind of talked about this before, but uh old favorite players that you've coached or anyone that you've coached against, you know, this yeah. Um Zaire Franklin's a guy that pops into my mind right away. Um Zaire was a is a uh was a linebacker force at Syracuse. Um when I got to Syracuse, he was, I believe, a junior. He's one of the only three-time captains at Syracuse um is currently um one of the leading tacklers for the Colts right now but a guy that just got everything out of his ability um and a guy that uh you know he was a a, a senior four-year starter at Syracuse at linebacker and was still sitting in the special teams meeting in the front row right in the middle right in front of me um totally locked in taking notes in every meeting and uh just one of the best guys I've ever been around just a professional when he was in college and it's not surprising that you know I think he I'm not sure if he got drafted I think he he went as a free agent but now he's having a really successful career with the Colts and I I bring him up a lot in our special teams meetings at, uh, to our players uh, what an example he has set as uh just a true pro and um you know, he, he's the kind of guy where you take him off a, a kickoff and he's pissed off, you know. Um, he wants to play, be on the field every single play. And that's one of those things the measurables don't show, right, is that Yeah, for sure. That, you know, so that's pretty cool that he's had that that type of career and, you know, yeah. had that much success. All right, here's my last one for you. And okay. I, I think this is cool because you've been around, you've done it a lot. What's one of the biggest mistakes that coaches make when they end up in a new program or a new place? um that you've seen wow that's interesting um one of the biggest mistakes I, I mean I, I'm gonna go back to this probably is just um the authenticity piece like you know and and there's two things number one you got to be like yourself man you know like don't try to even if the head coach um you have to buy into what he's doing and and what he's preaching but you got to do it with your own lens and and you got to be yourself still um, and I just have been around some guys where, you know, I think try to be what the head coach wants and or try to be what he thinks the players want. And, you know, it just it's so easy to spot that and being true to yourself and being true to what you believe in uh, is just so valuable. And I, I know that's maybe doesn't sound that important, but uh, I think it is. And uh I've seen that mistake made by some some people. No, I think just like you said there, like putting it in your own lens or your own ver uh, voice, right? But still being yourself. There's a there's For sure. a validity to that. So, all right, Coach. Well, hey, I, I appreciate the time. I know you're a busy man. One more thing. I know you said on a, a couple of uh, talks that you go walking with your wife and you say, "Hey, this team's going to be really good," and they suck. Yeah. Or you say, "Hey, this team's going to be you know terrible," and they're really good. So. What do you think the walk's going to be like this year? How are you feeling? I know it's so early in the recruiting class and all that stuff, but how are you feeling on the walk? And and what is it what is it going to be like for this year's Vandy uh, team? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, I mean, first off, I, I think I'm like a lot of coaches, you know, always like 
you know, we got to get better and, you know, feeling like you stink all the time because there's so much room for improvement. But I will say being here at Vanderbilt and working for Clark Lee, Clark Lee is one of the best I've ever been around. Um, I truly believe in what we're building here and, um, and how we're building it. And uh, I have so much confidence in what he's doing and it's exciting. And it's, uh, it's a place where, you know, the guys are bought in and it's a true team atmosphere. Um, there's, there's a, there's, and we talk about true brotherhood, true brotherhood here, and and that that exists, and I think that's harder and harder to exist at a lot of places. So, because of that, man, I'm I'm super excited about this season coming up, and I think you know if you look at the progress we've made over the last two years, um, we're trending in the right direction, and we're bringing you know good players in here, but not only good players, but players that are a good fit for us. Um, and staff members that are good fits for us. And and it's exciting. It's an exciting time to be here and putting a lot of money into the facilities too, which, you know, obviously is good for recruiting, but it, what it really, to me, says is is the support of the administration. Um, and so everything seems to start starting to align for us here and we're excited about the future. Yeah, it's sweet. And I, I do have, have noticed that you guys, you know, the climb has been steady and consistent. Coach Lee sounds like a, an awesome person so as you know Nashville being my second home I'm, I'm rooting for you guys and and pulling for you guys to be successful so well, I appreciate it man yeah well appreciate you coach that's been coach Justin Lustig uh, assistant uh, head coach and special teams coordinator the Vanderbilt Commodores a word from our sponsors this show is brought to you by the Kickers Bible the Kickers Bible ever wondered about how many kicks you should do during practice after pulling your quad multiple times repeatedly snapping the ball over your punter's head keep getting dumped by all your girlfriends for missing kicks well we can't help with all those things but for some of those there's the kicker's bible proven training methods and secrets used by nfl specialists written by yours truly brett arkellian with over 20 nfl specialist accounts including personal excerpts from record-setting and hall of fame specialists david akers and shane graham if you are interested in any of these fantastic tips and excerpts discussed in this episode, visit IcemanKicking.com or go to my Twitter bio, Iceman underscore kicking.